Uh, I don't know if you're a game player or what games you played. Uh, when I was in high school and college, one of the big games was Risk. Um, of course, it was one of those games that never ends. So uh, it's one of those games I tend to avoid a little bit now. It just goes on forever and ever. But it's a world-conquering game. You have a map of the world that is the game board, and you are given certain countries that you own, and there's incentives to try to conquer uh, entire continents, and of course the goal is world domination. Uh, one of the inevitable parts of the game is the forming of alliances. It's kind of hard to get away from it. Uh, you have to try to find allies around the table. Uh, try to find a peaceful border that um, allows you to focus your energies in other directions. But of course you have to choose your alliances very carefully. You have to ask, who can I trust? Right? Now that's just a board game. It's really not that important. But I think it's a great uh, question in life, right? Where is my confidence? Where, is, where am I placing my trust? Who am I or what am I depending on? And if you don't answer that question correctly, you set yourself up for disappointment, frustration, and bitterness when people or things let you down. Uh, we are going to be in the book of Isaiah today, and Isaiah constitutes a warning about trusting in the wrong people and in the wrong things. Right? So he's going to uh, challenge us and encourage us in this regard. Now, we are in the midst of uh, what we've called Route 66, Road Trip Through the Bible. I've seen a new faces. I've met a few new people here this morning. Uh, we are doing something that's a little bit challenging. We're trying to cover one book of the Bible uh, every week this calendar year. Matter of fact, some weeks we're covering more than one book of the Bible to get through in 52 weeks. So uh, the, the challenge is to not make this feel like some type of an Old Testament survey class, okay? So we're not going to do deep dive in any portion of the text. We're going to do a brief overview, and I want to really crystallize what I think is the point of Isaiah. There's a, there's a big takeaway that I want us to, to have here, and we'll, we'll really focus and spend some expanded time on that. And then, of course, as we've done every week, we'll look at how the text points us to Christ. We'll look at those, those gospel glimpses. Uh, now, we are into a new section. We are actually on the second row of our bookshelf. So uh, this, is, this is good progress. Uh, we started with the books of the law, or the books of Moses, the little orange stack there on the left. That really laid the groundwork. Uh, we read about how God created the world and humanity, right? Created us in his image. Uh, we read about the fall of humanity into sin and all the brokenness and death that came along with that. And we see God initiating a plan for redemption. Uh, God makes some initial promises right there in Genesis chapter 3 to make things right again, to send a deliverer. Uh, he, he highlights Abraham and enters into a covenant relationship with a man named Abraham, determines through Abraham to bring blessing to all the nations of the world. So we begin to watch and pay careful attention to Abraham's descendants. Uh, when will this deliverer come? Who will this deliverer be? And so the descendants of Abraham, we come to call them the children of Israel, the people of Israel, the nation of Israel. 
And so those blue books on the top shelf uh, take us through Israel's history. Again, we're paying careful attention to the arrival of the promised deliverer. Uh, the little purple stack are the, the writings, uh, at least called the writings in the Hebrew Bible, or what we call the Old Testament. Uh, these are often books of poetry. They address a range of very real human emotions and issues. Uh, we have Job there, the, the issue of suffering. We have in the Psalms a songbook that reflects the passions of God's people, how we relate to God uh, in worship and in prayer. Uh, we have the Proverbs, a book of wisdom for navigating life. Ecclesiastes addresses the meaning of life, and the, sometimes the, uh, the whole arena of depression is, is addressed there in Ecclesiastes. And then Song of Solomon, uh, addressing love, particularly marital love, uh, which pictures, again, the gospel. So uh, that brings us here to the prophets. Um, and there's two sections of prophets. You see the hot pink uh, section of books there. Uh, those are called the major prophets. Uh, and then the, the bright green section are the minor prophets. And the distinction is simply the length of their works. So uh, the major prophets, their books are quite long. They wrote a lot. And the minor prophets, the books are quite short. They didn't contribute uh, as much. They wrote much less. Okay? So it has nothing to do with their importance. They're all important. It's all part of God's word. But just as a way of sort of grouping them a little bit, we have the major prophets and the minor prophets. Of course, Isaiah heads the list of major prophets because he wrote a lot. 66 chapters in the book of Isaiah. All right? Um, so he, he's a fitting one to uh, kind of lead us into a consideration of the prophets. Now, I also want to clarify here at the outset what a prophet is or who a prophet is. Uh, a prophet, we think, is a, prof- is a person who, who predicts the future, right? Uh, we even use that in common vernacular. I'm not the prophet or a son of a prophet, right? I can't tell the future. Uh, that is maybe in some cases part of a prophet's role to speak things about the future. But the essence of a prophet's role is to speak on behalf of someone else. That's really what a prophet is. They are a mouthpiece. And of course, in this case, they're God's mouthpiece, God's spokesperson. Uh, Think about it like this. The president's press secretary uh, plays this kind of a role. He or she holds a news conference, and they are never seen to be speaking for themselves, but are believed to be expressing only the words of the president, right? They are putting forward the president's agenda, the president's policy statements. So that press secretary is simply a mouthpiece. And that's the way we ought to think about the prophets. Now the prophets come onto the scene uh, at a time when Israel is in a bad way. Okay, things are a mess. They have gone off the rails. That's why the prophets are necessary. God had to send uh, multiple prophets to try to redirect the people from their destructive course. Um, this little chart gives you an overview. It tries to summarize all of the different prophets. Again, uh, 16 uh, different prophets that are represented here. 
uh, on the left column, you have uh, Assyria, Babylon, and Persia. So at this time, God allowed foreign nations to grow in power, and Israel as a nation was subjugated to them. So certainly politically, this was a, uh, a down time for Israel. Um, you also have some, some of the prophets that came early in that period during the time of Assyria. Isaiah is one of those. Isaiah actually comes on the scene before Israel goes into exile to Assyria. Uh, but then at later time, Babylon becomes the world power over Assyria, and then Persia supplants Babylon. And so you have prophets that are at the beginning period who are warning Israel that they're going to go into exile. You have prophets who are prophesying in the midst of exile. And you have other prophets that are prophesying at the end of exile. But the point of, of the graphic is simply that Israel is uh, in a position of weakness, subject to other nations. And that's part of God's discipline. God allowed these other nations to rise up, to suppress his people uh, in order to bring judgment, in order to, to bring them uh, to the end of themselves, in order to bring them back to himself. They were also weakened in the sense that they were divided as a nation. So under the time of King David and King Solomon, uh, Israel was kind of at its, um, uh, at its strongest and they, they received all the land that God had promised to give them as a nation. But after David and Solomon, uh, they became splintered and fractured. And so the northern uh, section uh, became known as the, the, the nation of Israel. And the southern section became known as Judah. Jerusalem, the capital city, would have been in that southern area of Judah. And it's really that southern area that Isaiah is predominantly writing to. So we get just a little bit of a sense of what was going on. This is, a, this is a tough time. These foreign powers are rising up. And the question again, what, how will Israel respond to this? Uh, will they trust him? Will they trust God? Or will they try to put their hope in other things and other people? Right? It brings us back to that question. Where is your, where is your hope at? What are you depending on? Again, Isaiah specifically was one of the earlier prophets. He comes onto the scene as King Uzziah is finishing his 52-year reign in Jerusalem. So Uzziah, 52 years he was the king in Jerusalem. And he was actually one of the few godly kings. So that was kind of a that was kind of a high point. In the midst of all, all of these various kings and, and, and all the mess that was going on, Uzziah kind of represented a little bit of a reprieve and uh, served righteously for 52 years. But Isaiah comes onto the scene in the year that King Uzziah died. And things begin to go downhill very quickly. Okay, so Isaiah is stepping into what's going to be a really desperate situation. And he's addressing God's people. Two major portions of the book. Uh, the first uh, portion is focused on condemnation and confrontation and exile because of the people's sin. That's chapters 1 through 39. It's not all doom and gloom. 
There are little bursts of hope and promises throughout, but it tends to be a darker, more ominous section. The second section uh, is focused on comfort and restoration and hope. Uh, Not because the people get their act together, but just because God is faithful and uh, he brings about restoration for them. So that's chapters 40 through 66. The two sections are very different, so different that some people say, oh, this is two authors. Uh, This can't be the work of one person. Uh, But Isaiah is quoted at length in the New Testament, uh, both the early part of Isaiah and the latter part of Isaiah, and it's all attributed to Isaiah. It's one author, one prophet, and I love what God does here. God, he's bringing them a message about exile and judgment and warning. And at the very same time, he's bringing them a a reminder of hope and restoration that is to come. That again, God doesn't just allow them to wallow or despair in their sin and in his judgment. But at the same time he proclaims judgment, he proclaims hope. And uh, I, I love how that is brought together here in the prophet Isaiah. So those two sections, exile and rest, restoration. Let's for, look first at exile. I want to do a very brief overview. And then I want to kind of focus in on, um, there, there's some historical narratives and a, and a key contrast here that uh, we, we must grasp here this morning. So, uh, brief overview. The road to exile, chapters 1 through 5, uh, we get just a description of what's going on here. Uh, Isaiah 1, verse 1, the vision concerning Judah and Jerusalem that Isaiah, son of Amoz, saw during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Hear me, you heavens, listen, earth, For the Lord has spoken. I reared children and brought them up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its master, the donkey its owner's manger, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. What a description, right? I raised Israel as my child, and they have rebelled against me. They have completely turned against me. Uh, Even a dog knows its master, right? But my people don't know me. They don't recognize me. They don't respond to my voice. So this is Isaiah's initial description of the rebellion of the people. Uh, They were engaged in a lot of religious rituals. They were still offering sacrifices in the temple. They were, um, you know, going to church, as it were. But uh, all was not well. Isaiah 1, verse 13 Here is God's indictment. Stop bringing meaningless offerings. Your incense is detestable to me. New moons, Sabbaths, and convocations. I cannot bear your worthless assemblies. Your new moon feasts and your appointed festivals I hate with all my being. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands in prayer, I hide my eyes from you. Even when you offer many prayers, I am not listening. Your hands are full of blood. So the hands in the Bible refer to your life. It's what you do uh, during the week. It's your lifestyle. It's your 
uh, various things that you're engaged in. So God says, I see you coming to church each week. I see you bringing your sacrifices, but I, I, can't, I can't even receive those things because your lives are characterized by such sin. Verses 16 to 17, describe the sin. Wash and make yourselves clean. Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong. Learn to do right. Seek justice. Defend the oppressed. Take up the cause of the fatherless. Plead the case of the widow. He doesn't necessarily point out all these heinous things that the people are doing. It's not a description specifically of sexual immorality or or murder or whatever it might be. He says you're you're not loving each other. You're taking advantage of each other. You're, you're taking advantage of vulnerable people. You're allowing uh, uh, justice to be, um, uh, to be perverted. Uh, you're, you know, you're, you're maybe taking people to courts and, 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 and misrepresenting them for your own personal gain. So he's writing about a lot of what I might call white-collar type of sins, Right? And, and just calling the people, confronting their lack of love uh, for each other. Chapter 5 gives us a, a really good summary. Uh, he uses a very vivid picture here in chapter 5 to describe the situation. I will sing for the one I love a song about his vineyard. My loved one had a vineyard on a fertile hillside. He dug it up and cleared it, out of sto- cleared it of stones and planted it with the choicest vines. He built a watchtower in it and cut out a wine press as well. Then he looked for a crop of good grapes, but it yielded only bad fruit. Now you dwellers in Jerusalem and people of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more could have been done for my vineyard than, than I have done for it? When I looked for good grapes, why did it yield only bad Now I will tell you what I am going to do to my vineyard. I will take away its hedge, and it will be destroyed. I will break down its wall, and it will be trampled. I will make it a wasteland, neither pruned nor cultivated, and briars and thorns will grow there. I will command the clouds not to rain on it. The vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the nation of Israel, and the people of Judah are the vines he delighted in. And he looked for justice but he saw bloodshed for righteousness, but heard cries of distress. So this beautiful vineyard, he said, did everything. He irrigated it. He he put walls around to make sure that the varmints couldn't get in and eat anything. And he had high hopes that the vineyard would produce good fruit, right? Good grapes. But it didn't. Uh, And he says, "This this is like my people, I gave them every advantage. I blessed them. I prospered them. And not only didn't they produce good fruit, they produced bad fruit. So this is the, this is the situation that Isaiah is stepping into. And so chapters 1 to 5 really, they, they describe what I call the road to exile. This is, this is why they've ended up here under God's judgment. I think sobering, uh, a sobering statement. God disciplines his children, right? Uh, the fact that we are uh, under the blood of Christ as, as his followers and free from condemnation does not change the effects of sin. It does not change uh, God's commitment to discipline his children. And so there's a, there's a, there's a warning here uh, regarding uh, the consequences of sin. Uh, chapter 6, we have the commissioning of a prophet. 
Uh, here Isaiah kind of tells his story now. He steps onto the scene. Chapter 6, verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. So Isaiah encounters the the living God here, and uh, he's overwhelmed with God's majesty. This is the whole scene here. The the throne of God is, is high and lifted up, and his glory is just filling the temple. And there's angels there all around worshiping. And uh, the angels uh, have six wings, but only two of them are used to fly. The other two are used to shield themselves from the glory of God. They, they could, even the angels could not stand before the brilliance of God's presence. And they can just simply cry out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. And even Isaiah Probably the most righteous person of his day feels completely undone, right? He is fearful. Uh, he cannot stand before this God. Uh, he says there in verse 5, Woe to me, I cried, I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. And so often we compare ourselves to other people, right? And we can always find someone who's a little bit worse off than we are, someone that could make us feel a little better about ourselves and our own situation and our own problems. Uh, But that's not the standard, is it? Uh, The standard is God's holiness. And here Isaiah comes face to face with it and realizes his desperate condition and the desperate condition of the people. God in His grace comes, sends one of the angels Uh, to take a stone, a a burning coal out of the fire and cleanse Isaiah's lips. We read about this in verse 6. God makes atonement for Isaiah, allowing Isaiah to remain in his presence, right? Or powerful picture. We are sinful. Every one of us, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And uh, we stand under God's wrath. only through Christ are we able to have our sins atoned for, right? Able to, to, to come into his presence. So we, the gospel is so clearly portrayed here. God's glory, our sinfulness, our need for atonement. It's pictured powerfully in Isaiah's story. Isaiah is told to go and talk to the people, to warn them, uh, to call them back to God. Um, But Isaiah is told that the people will not listen. I want you to go and embrace this ministry, but no one's going to pay any attention to you, Isaiah. But Isaiah was called to be faithful, leave the results to God, and uh, he he goes off to serve as God's mouthpiece. Israel and Assyria, chapter 7 through 12. Uh, We're going to talk a little bit more about this later, but uh, the Assyrian Empire is, is building. So we get some historical details here in chapter 7. 
Uh, eventually, the northern kingdom of Israel is going to fall. The northern kingdom of Israel was uh, further gone than the southern kingdom of Judah, morally speaking. Uh, they they uh, didn't have hardly any good kings up there in the north, and they degenerated rapidly, and God allowed them to be conquered by Assyria, taken off into exile. So that is all recorded there in chapter 7 through 12. In the midst of that, God does continue to give promises of hope. Uh, one of the ones we're most familiar with is that a, a root will come up a, 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 from the, from the uh, a shoot will come up from the root of Jesse, from David's line. Right. Uh, matter of fact, here the imagery here is that uh, Israel is like a tree that's been cut down. It's a sad, desolate scene as the tree of Israel falls. But God says, I'm, there's a little root, a little shoot that's going to come up from that stump. And again, that, that, that's a, a promise that's claimed into the New Testament to describe Jesus as a, a shoot from the, the tribe of David. So again, there's little bursts of hope, but, but we see Israel falling to Assyria there in those chapters. Chapters 13 through 23, the fate of the surrounding nations. Uh, God is bringing judgment on his people, right? He's disciplining them, but he's also going to bring judgment on these surrounding nations. Babylon, the Philistines, Moab, Damascus, Cush, Egypt, Edom, Tyre, the list goes on and on. God says, um, I'm raising up these other nations right now to bring discipline to my people, but don't worry, I'm going to deal with them later. Right? It's a great statement of God's sovereignty. He's raising up dignitaries and he's deposing kings. Uh, great reminder in our day when we can be very concerned about uh, uh, political leaders and political agendas. We can feel as if uh, Judeo-Christian ethics are being spurned and and uh, we're being overtaken with all sorts of secular ideologies. Uh, take it down, right? God raises people up and he deposes rulers. Uh, we don't have to be afraid. We grieve when sin prevails, okay? Don't get me wrong. We grieve over, uh, over sin, but we do not despair. Isaiah is a great reminder of the sovereignty of God. In all of these events. Uh, chapters 24 to 27 uh, tell a tale of two cities. Um, Isaiah kind of puts this picture together. All the, the, the peoples of the world who stand against God. Who shake their fists at God. They are like a city that is going to be made desolate. And uh, the people that fear God are going to be established in a prospering, secure city. And so basically Isaiah says, hey, there's a great reversal coming in which um, God's people are going to be vindicated. So again, some elements of future hope here, even as he's warning them about judgment. Uh, chapters 28 to 35, some accusations against Jerusalem's leaders. Very sobering section for those of us who, who bear uh, leadership responsibilities. Uh, obviously, uh, the kings of Israel, 
uh, the priests, the teachers of the law. Uh, there were some issues there in terms of leaders who were not doing their job and who were actually leading the people astray. And Isaiah calls them to account in no uncertain terms. There is then a description of Judah and Assyria. So again, remember, Israel in the north fell to Assyria. And then some time passed, and then Assyria comes against Judah in the south. And then uh, we have, in chapters 38 and 39, a historical transition. Up until this point, it's been about Assyria and their growing power. But here in chapters 38 and 39, we see Babylon usurping Assyria. And now, through the rest of the book, the focus is on Babylon as that oppressing nation. So here in this opening section, we have a cautionary tale and a commendable example. Here's where I want to kind of crystallize it down. There's two historical um, events that are recorded here, and they, they provide a contrast for us. I think really capture well um, how we ought to respond uh, the first involves King Pekah and King Ahaz back in chapter 7. I'm going to read a couple of verses for you, and it's a lot of names and locations, okay? So I'm going to unpack it for us, but I want us to just capture a sense of the historical context here. Chapter 7, when Ahaz, son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, was king of Judah, king Rezin of Aram, and Pekah, son of Ramalia, king of Israel marched up to fight against Jerusalem, but they could not overpower it. Now the house of David was told, Aram has allied itself with Ephraim. So the hearts of Ahaz and his people were shaken, as the trees of the forest are shaken by the wind. So King Ahaz is the king now in Jerusalem. His father was King Uzziah, had a long and godly reign. Uzziah is gone. King Ahaz is now on the scene. He is not a godly man like his father. Assyria is growing in power, okay? Uh, king Pekah in the north, in Israel, forms an alliance with the king of Aram. People are beginning to, to get ready, right? Assyria is coming. <laughs> so, uh, King Pekah and the king of Aram form an alliance, and Ahaz is down here in Jerusalem thinking, oh boy, everybody is finding their alliances. What am, what am I going to do, you know? I, and King Ahaz ends up forming an alliance with Assyria. Isaiah warns him, says, don't, don't do this. Don't, don't do what the king of Israel did up in the north. You trust the Lord. But Ahaz did not listen. He formed an alliance with Assyria, he paid tribute to Assyria. He actually imported many of the Assyrian worship practices, thinking maybe I could, you know, appease the Assyrians here a little bit. Needless to say, it did not go well, right? The northern kingdom of Israel was taken off into uh, exile, and King Rezin in the north, and King Ahaz in the south, both failed to trust the Lord and instead trusted other foreign dignitaries and foreign uh, empires. 
The contrast here is with King Hezekiah in chapters 36 and 37. Now we're one more generation removed. King Hezekiah is the son of King Ahaz. So we had King Uzziah, then King Ahaz, and now King Hezekiah comes onto the scene in Jerusalem. And now Assyria is coming against Jerusalem. They surround the city. The city is under siege, and they're calling out taunts to King Hezekiah and to the people. You better surrender. Your God can't help you. What will Hezekiah do, right? He's under pressure here. Where will he turn? Who will he trust? And we read there in chapter 37 that Hezekiah tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes, and he went into the temple and prayed out to God, begging God for mercy. He called for Isaiah the prophet to come. He consulted of the Lord. God, what should we do? What will you do to protect your people? And Isaiah says, Hezekiah, don't worry about it. God is going to bring deliverance for his people. And Hezekiah is probably scratching his head. You know, I mean, there's this myriad of troops outside there. They're they're completely defenseless. They're running out of food and water in the city. But Isaiah says, trust the Lord. And sure enough, word comes to the Assyrian commander that something else is going on in the empire and the whole Assyrian army just leaves. (laughs) I think we have a picture here. We have a picture of King Pekah and... Uh, King Ahaz, who kind of cave and start looking for other solutions and try to trust other military regimes to no avail. And then we have King Hezekiah, who when placed under pressure, trusts the Lord. This is part of Isaiah's ongoing theme, calling the people to trust the Lord. Don't trust other kings he has a great section in chapter 31 where he, 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 he likens Egypt to a, a broken staff. He says, don't lean on Egypt because it will break under your weight and you'll end up with a nasty splinter, right? Ugh, you'll be pierced by that broken reed, that broken staff. Don't trust those foreign kings. And don't trust other gods. He deals with that in several places. Do not trust in yourselves. Chapter 22, a whole section on their ingenuity and their uh, setting up their own defenses, but they were not looking to the Lord to save them. So Isaiah is, is continually warning them. And uh, to me, this is, this is the, the, the takeaway. The big idea from Isaiah is that we are not to trust to place our trust in other people or other things. And we are just as prone to it as the people of Isaiah's day. We trust in our possessions, right? Our, our investment accounts, our, uh, the equity in our homes, our savings accounts, right? We, we, we can very easily trust in our, our finances. Uh, we can trust in politics. And again, our world is rocked when our political party does not prevail Uh, We can trust in vaccines. I'm not an anti-vaxxer, okay? I don't mean that to be a a political statement. But let's keep a vaccine in its proper perspective, right? It can be a wise choice, but some of the testimonials, people saying, oh, I've just been so rocked with anxiety, and now I can finally, uh, 
I finally have peace. I'm paraphrasing, right? But if, you, if, if you're, you're putting all of your weight on physical health and safety, you're going to be let down someday. Until, unless Christ returns, we're all going to die. <laughs> There's millions of dollars being spent on nutrition and all these sorts of things. But if that's where your hope is at, then you're going to be disappointed. Right? We trust relationships. Maybe it's a boyfriend or a girlfriend or even a spouse. But inevitably, uh, they're not able to provide us with security and, and identity. Uh, we trust in the talking heads of our culture to tell us what to do and what to value. And we have our news stations, whatever they might be, right? We trust in our own ingenuity and our own sensibilities. But these things will all let us down and ultimately will prove unreliable. Certainly the gospel is present here in Isaiah's call as well. A lot of people are depending on themselves for their own salvation, right? And Isaiah reminds them that salvation is of the Lord. Uh, matter of fact, that's what Isaiah means. That's what the name Isaiah means. Yahweh is salvation. Uh, Isaiah's name reminded the people where they ought to be looking. <laughs> that we have a tendency to look in a lot of different places for our salvation. And Isaiah reminds the people of his day and reminds us to look to the Lord. It's really the focus here of the end part of the book. This whole section on restoration and God's salvation and his deliverance from exile. Uh, the basis for their hope is the sovereignty and majesty of God. Uh, chapters 40 to 48 are just a great study on the person of God. Uh, so many different descriptions of who God is and what he does. Uh, Yahweh is identified as the Savior on uh, multiple occasions there. Uh, chapter 43, verse 3. Uh, For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. Uh, he identifies himself as the one who will deliver them. Yahweh is identified as Redeemer. Chapter 52, verse 3, uh, multiple times throughout the book, his people are called his redeemed ones. Uh, this is a powerful uh, idea, this idea of redemption, right? Having been uh, enslaved uh, because of indebtedness, right? If you, if you couldn't pay your debts, you didn't declare bankruptcy, you became a slave. And when God's people had no way to repay the debt of their sin, God paid the debt. He bought them back out of, out of slavery. He redeemed them. This was a rich Old Testament concept. Uh, the, the kinsman redeemer who could come to the aid of his or her family member and buy, pay off their debts and rescue them out of bondage and slavery. This is what God does for us. God is the sovereign ruler over pagan kings. He raises them up and brings them down. All of these things are developed there in chapters 40 to 48. And Isaiah points them to God as the source of their salvation. 
Notice chapter 40. Verse 18. With whom then will you compare God? To what image will you liken him? As for an idol, a metal worker casts it, and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and fashions silver chains for it. A person too poor to present such an offering selects wood that will not rot. They look for a skilled worker to set up an idol that will not topple. Do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood since the earth was founded? He sits enthroned above the circle of the earth, and its people are like grasshoppers. So he compares God to the idols that they're worshiping and reminds them uh, that there is no comparison. Uh, The focus of their hope is on the coming Messiah. Isaiah gets very specific in the latter chapters here, describing not just a geopolitical deliverer, but pointing to uh, one who would save them from their sins. Uh, Chapter 53 is a chapter we're so familiar with, so many quotations and prophecies in chapter 53 that point us to Christ. Uh, He would suffer... Uh, and he would bear their iniquities, right? So this idea of a suffering servant, a deliverer who would come and deliver them not just from Assyria or Babylon or Persia, but one who would deliver them from their sin, from themselves. So a, a wonderful expansion of the topic of salvation, moving well beyond military salvation. And then closing, those who acknowledge their sins and turn to God will be delivered. So many beautiful pictures here of what is in store, what God has in store for his people, uh, specifically for Israel. Uh, Jesus quoted these passages, uh, as Steve Wilson read for us this morning. Uh, Jesus came and said, all those wonderful things that Isaiah talked about, they are now fulfilled in me. (laughs) Uh, The time has now come, for the kingdom is at hand. Uh, wonderful images of a new heaven and a new earth, of all things being set right and made new. And so Isaiah, again, calls them away from all the things they were depending on and urges them to trust in the Lord, to look to Him for their salvation. Isaiah contributes many prophecies regarding the first coming of Jesus. Uh, You see a lot of those references there. And in addition, Isaiah also speaks to the second coming of Jesus. Uh, So much material here pointing us to Christ. Well, I started off talking about risk, the board game. And you have to be careful who you trust. The reality is in risk, you don't trust anyone. Everyone always lets you down. The alliances are always broken. The question is simply when <laughs> you will be disappointed and betrayed. Right? And it's really true in life. Uh, the, the things that we look to, to and depend on, whether they be possessions or ideologies or people, will inevitably disappoint God is the source of salvation. Yahweh is salvation. And we would do well to hear Isaiah's call to us today.